Last week we started a teaching series called Being the People of God. And what we wanted to do and want to do in this series is really recenter ourselves on the truth of who we are as God's people. That we are a people, not an event, a people, not a building and that we are a special people, that God has called us together and has rescued us out of sin and death uh, in order that we might live for Him uh, as the church uh, wherever we are and then together united as the church, capital C, big church. And so last week we looked at that seminal passage in First Peter where Peter uses some Old Testament language to remind the church scattered across the empire, who they are. That they are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession. I hope that was meaningful to you last week and that those phrases rang true in your heart all week long uh, and continue to do so. It's where we get our identity from, and therefore how we ought to order our lives. We were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Well, today what we want to talk about is the role of Jesus in the people of God. And obviously His role is pervasive, and we could talk about that for the rest of our lives. But specifically, Paul uh, uses the language that Christ is our head. That is, He is the head of the church. And so we want to talk about what exactly that means and the role that Jesus plays within the church. Again, obviously, Jesus is everything within the church, and I think that's why Paul uses the language of headship to describe Him. But we want to talk about that. What does that mean, and what are the implications of that? Uh, We are the people of God only because Jesus was the person of God. We're the people of God because we're connected to Jesus. And Paul makes that language clear throughout his writings that we are the body. The body doesn't exist without its connection to the head. And so there are several passages we could go to. Colossians chapter 1 is a fantastic passage. Uh, I would encourage you to read that in your own times. If I keep turning this way, I'm just trying to block the wind. Uh, I don't dislike all of you sitting in the sun, but you probably would rather hear my voice than see my face, I'm guessing. But where we want to look today is Ephesians chapter 1. And the truth is, many scholars believe that Ephesians and Colossians uh, are written from the same stock. That is, they're the same kind of content of letter, but written to two different churches, the church at Ephesus and the church at Colossae. And so they sound an awful lot alike if you read them side by side, with some uh, differences only as Paul speaks contextually to each church. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 is where we're going to be at. If you're following along on the Bible app, which I forgot to mention at the start of our service, that's where you can get the song lyrics. That's where you can also get this passage of Scripture if it's easy for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Incidentally, church, 
it's good and right for you to pray for each other. Right? Paul reminds us of that, and I would encourage you to that. If that's not part of your regular rhythm, to be praying for each other as part of the church, please make, make it so. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. If you're wanting to know how you should pray for each other, that's how you should pray for each other. It's great to pray for each other to have a good day or for the big decisions that are in front of us or for the health complications that we face. All of those are good and right ways to pray. But the primary way that we ought to be praying for each other is that we would grow in knowledge, in the knowledge of God and in His wisdom for us. Uh, verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance. That's the language we talked about last week, right? So you're praying for each other, praying that we would take that identity as God's people and root our lives around it. Verse 19, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead. This is how we end every service on Sunday with a benediction uh, reminding that we've been sent in the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Here Paul uses the language of Christ as head. And so what I want to ask today as we consider this is just a couple of questions that hopefully get us to a good understanding of what Paul's talking about. The first is, what does Paul mean when he uses the language Christ is head? The second is, why? Why is Christ the head of the church? And the third is, how? How does Christ exert this headship in the church. And then somewhat throughout, but then also at the end, we'll talk about, so so what? Like, what are the implications for us, especially as we gather as God's people? So, what does Paul mean when he says Christ is the head? The word head is a Greek word. It's the word kephale. And you might not be surprised to hear, its literal translation is head, right? Like your noggin. It's your head. It's a part of the body. But it's also used sometimes of people, and usually talking about a leader, someone who rules or exerts authority, but also talking about someone who is an initiator, the source, the place where something comes from. And even in literature, sometimes used with the language of a cornerstone, right? Now, I'm not a great builder. My understanding of cornerstones only comes through theology in the Bible. But the idea of a cornerstone is that it's the first stone laid. So it's the initial stone that is put in there. But it's also a sustaining stone. It holds everything true and holds everything together. So there's some great theological debate 
that centers around the word kephale in the Greek language that says, well, does it mean source or does it mean authority? Is it a source or is it authority? Uh, and the truth of the matter is, there is a Greek word for authority. And there's also a Greek word for source. And so if Paul wanted to say Christ was the source of the church, he would have used that word. And if he only wanted to say that Christ was the authority for the church, or the ruler of the church, or the Lord of the church, Koryas, he would have used that word. Paul here is not going for a very specific thing. He's painting a, a picture, an analogy of who Jesus is in the same way that the head functions to the body. He's going for something much more picturesque, much more deep, much more broad, uh, much more analogous. So is he simply saying authority? No. But is Christ an authority? Yes. Is he simply saying source? No. But is Christ the source? Yes. When Paul uses the word head here, what I think he's getting after is the idea of that Christ is the initiator and the sustainer of the church who does, throw, does so through his good and gracious rule and direction. He is our head. He's an initiator and sustainer of the church. Done so through His good and gracious rule and direction. He is our head. Now, there are some necessary ramifications from that, right? If Christ is the head, then a lot of other things are not the head of the church. And it would be wrong of us not to pause and talk about that. But the first thing that is not the head of the church is human government. Human government is not the head of the church. Now, throughout his the history of the church, human government has supposed itself to be the head of the church. Uh, and there's all kinds of church history around that. One of the great uh, reformers, the Scottish reformer, John Knox, uh, is fighting hard and strong in England and Scotland of the day against the government's imposition on the church, that the king or the queen of England is the head of the church. And his answer is, Jesus is the head of the church. In the same way, uh, no democratically elected human government is head of the church. Jesus is head of the church. And therefore, human government shouldn't tell the church how it ought to be the church. Jesus tells us what it means to be the church. Right? So there's something bubbling up in the back of your head right now. Perhaps it's the elephant in the room. Because here we are six months into COVID, and here I am declaring human government isn't the head of the church Jesus is, and yet we've been meeting online for six months, and here we are uh, freezing our toes and fingers off outside right now. And Pastor Adam saying that the government isn't the head of the church, and yet we're doing what they've asked. We have to remember that the Scripture reminds us that human government is put in place through God and under His direction, and that we are called to live in submission to them in so much as we can. And it's been my take as your pastor, and our elders have agreed, that it is right for us as a church to attempt to 
follow the lead of the government in not gathering together in mass fashion in so long as the government would never impose upon us what we ought to believe, what we're allowed to say, and who we're allowed to worship. And so we make a distinction between that. Jesus is the head of the church, not human government. Second reality, Jesus is the head of the church, not some human religious figure. Here we would disagree with our Catholic friends who place the Pope in a position of human authority or leadership over the church. They would call him the Vicar of Christ. They would say that he speaks with authority or even infallibility. And we would say there is no human, single human representation of Christ on earth. The representation of Christ on earth from His own words is His collective body, not one individual person. Nor would we agree that one person speaks with infallibility even though bishops and popes and ecclesiastical leaders sometimes attempt to move into those positions. Christ is the head of the church. We listen for and follow His voice. Not the voice of human religious leaders. And so lest you think I'm talking about the higher religious leaders, the third truth of who is not the head of the church is your pastor. Right? And your local church leadership. Jesus is the head of the church. I am not. If anyone ever says, uh, Adam's church, or I go to Adam's church, or I'm part of Pastor Adam's church, I'm quick to correct you. And it might seem semantical, but yet it's the start of bad theology. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church, and it's collectively ours. In the same way, a pastor's vision or desire should never supersede what Jesus calls the church to actually be. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, Scripture clearly tells us that we are to have pastors and we're to appoint elders and they're to lead us, but they're to lead us in and under accountability according to what Jesus calls us to be. The final word for the church is not mine. The final word for the church is Jesus. That's why in the book of Acts, Uh, There's a group of people called the Bereans who are highly esteemed because they simply didn't take something and simply believe it because someone told them. But they thought deeply about it and they checked it against the Scriptures. And they, they studied it and they allowed Jesus to be the head of the church. And I would encourage you to do likewise. And then the last one, all right? I've already taken a shot at me, so now graciously allow me to take a shot at you. Right? Is that fair? The last people who are not the head of the church is you. I would love for you to be the head of the church. That's not true. I'd rather Jesus be the head of the church. I'm not saying that to publicly or privately criticize anyone here. You're all wonderful people. But the truth is that we collectively as people are not the head of the church. We're clearly the body is an unfortunate reality in Western culture especially in American culture 
that elevates the people within the church to the highest status of the church that rightfully only belongs to Jesus himself. It's why there's so much consumerism in our church today. And I would suggest to you that consumerism in the church is the greatest threat to the headship of Christ that can exist. Because we come and go as we please. And we want everything to orient around us. And what we're basically saying is, who's in charge? I am. Now listen, the Bible clearly says that there is a priesthood of believers. Your role is significant. Your voice matters. You shape the culture and the ministry of the church. You are significant. You're not just some you know, person who comes and has to do whatever anyone else says. Don't hear it that way. But you, just like the pastors, just like the elders, just like the bishops and the popes, and just like human government, are not the head of the church. Jesus is. And we all together fall in line to work towards His vision, His mission, His kingdom. What do we mean when we say Jesus is the head? First thing we mean is everyone else is not. Right? Jesus is the initiator of the church. We are not. Jesus is the sustainer of the church. We are not. Jesus rules the church. We do not. And Jesus guides the church. We do not. So, let's ask the question that maybe seems obvious, but is important for us to talk about theologically. And that is, why? Why is Jesus elevated to this role in the church? Why is He the head of the church? And Paul, in the Scripture that I just read to you, uh, and also in Colossians chapter 1, gives us three significant reasons. The first reason he gives is what I would summarize as the glory of Jesus. In that you get the statements that I read in Ephesians chapter 1. That God has raised him far above all other things, right? It's not that just that he climbed the corporate ladder and had made it to the top. No, God has raised him far above all other rulers. There's nothing close. There's no one like him. In Colossians, which I've already said is a similar letter, Paul gets even more beautifully picturesque. And I want to read it to you. Maybe even just close your eyes for a minute and revel in the glory of Jesus. It's what Paul writes to the Colossians about who Jesus is. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him, in Him, all things hold together. 
And He is the head of the body. The church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything He might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The glory of Jesus, friends, is the primary reason that Paul gives for his headship over the church. There's another reason, and Paul is careful to mention this too and makes much of it, and that's what we'll call the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus. The glory of Jesus, but also the work of Jesus. What Jesus has done. In Ephesians chapter 1, which we read earlier, Paul points to the resurrection as reason for the headship of Jesus. And the resurrection is significant, not just because uh, it gives us a holiday to celebrate in Easter. The resurrection is significant because what it means is that God has vindicated Jesus. Remember on the cross, Jesus takes on the sin of the world. And He dies. But His resurrection isn't just a great feat of power by God. His resurrection means that God has vindicated Him, has dealt with that sin once and for all, and has said that Jesus is therefore the rescuer of all people and grants Him new life, the first fruit from amongst the dead. And His vindication, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, leads to His glorification. It's on the basis of His vindication that He's raised to the highest place, far above all other powers and authorities. Throw in some Philippians language, that every day, at, at some point, every knee will bow and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. His work in His resurrection, of course in His resurrection, what He has done is provided redemption for all of humanity and reconciliation for the entire world. In the verses preceding Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul uses all kinds of language to talk about our redemption as human beings, our reconciliation. And every single phrase he uses is tied to the work of Jesus. In fact, Paul uses the phrase in Him a record number of times in, the, in this passage of Scripture. Letting us know that everything God has given us is because we're in Christ. It is that God has vindicated Jesus and if we're joined to Him, then we share in that reality. And therefore, who should be the head of the church? Me? You? No, it's the One who has redeemed all things. We're a church only because we're in Him. Therefore, He is our rightful head. And then third and finally, the reason why Jesus is the head uh, is the will of God. This is where parents like to say to their kids, because I said so. Right? You've given that phrase to your kids a million times. 
And we do it only because our parents did it to us a million times. And because we're parents, we feel like we have that right now. So if parents can say, I said so, then how much more can God say, because I said so? And the final and perhaps the most important reason that Jesus is the head of the church is because God declared it would be so. He has given Christ as head of the church. And so we could stop there and just make a theological statement about it. But we'd be amiss to do that. Because what you have here is once again a picture of the love and the grace of God. How kind of God to not only give us Jesus for our rescue, but to also give us Jesus as the head of our church. Think about it for a minute. God could have decided to give us an angel. That probably would have been good. But angels, as Scripture reminds us, are prone to fall themselves. And there's opportunity for the church to go astray. God could have given us human authority. But human authority is necessarily broken. And as we've seen, even in the livelihood of the church, leads the church astray. If you give a more literal translation of this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, this is kind of what it sounds like. It sounds like this. That God has made Jesus over everything. And he's also given him as head of the church. Is that everything, every single thing in this world has been put under the feet of Jesus. And therefore, headship over the church could be delegated to some lesser reality. But God, in His loving kindness for you and for me and for His church, has once again given us Jesus to lead the church. Incredibly kind. So how? Third question. How? How does Jesus lead the church? How is Jesus head of the church? How, how does that function? How does that work? And what I want to do is go back to the definition of head that I gave you. That is that Jesus is the initiator and the sustainer of the church who does so through his good and gracious rule and direction. So let me give you four ways that that plays itself out. First way is that Jesus really is the initiator of the church. He wasn't wrong in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus responded to that and said, that is right. And you're Peter, and on this rock, this statement, this man, this reality, I will build my church. Listen to that language again. I will build my church. Jesus is the initiator of the church. Not pastors, not missionaries, not you, not government. Jesus 
builds his church. The church exists because Jesus initiated it. He's not a hired hand who came in later. And he's still building it through his work of salvation and his application of the gospel to us. Jesus demonstrates his headship, exerts his headship by expanding his kingdom, by bringing new people into faith through him, by initiating his church. Jesus exerts his headship by sustaining his church. I mentioned before a concept, a way of understanding headship is this idea of cornerstone. Uh, and Paul will use that language in the very next chapter of Ephesians, chapter 2, uh, where he talks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone of the church. And again, the cornerstone is not just symbolic by being the first stone, the initial stone, but also by being the stone that keeps all the other stones together. He sustains the church. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and the church moves forward, not because of human effort, not because of ecclesiastical success, but because Jesus sustains his church. And if Jesus sustains the organism, the collective that he calls the church, then necessarily it is true that he sustains each individual that is part of that church. And so what that means is Jesus is not just the initiator of your faith. He's also the sustainer of your faith. And he's the giver of true life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses a significant analogy. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he goes on to suggest that if the branches aren't connected to the vine, there's no life that comes from it. And the same is true for you individually, for us as a local church, and for us collectively with every other church as the capital C church. That is, that if we are not connected to Jesus as the head, then we are not connected to life. And we are not being sustained in it. Jesus gives us life, and Jesus sustains us. Jesus rules his church. How does he do this? He rules his church through the scriptures. The scriptures are our final authority for all things in the church. The reformers were right to remember this. That creeds and councils and popes and leaders are important and significant in some way, but they do not speak with authority beyond the scriptures. Martin Luther was uh, famous for saying, unless you show me in the scriptures, remember he said, well his phrase was, I will not and cannot recant. They wanted him to change his opinion. But it's the scriptures through which we have the word, the message, the testimony of Christ. And therefore it's the Bible that is our guide as a church. It's the Bible that speaks truth to us. It's the Bible that helps us to show what it means to follow Christ and how to live into response to what He's done. And the Bible is the truth 
that guides us and through it Christ rules His church and doesn't allow it to be given to human error or to arrogance of leadership. And then lastly, Christ guides His church. He guides His church. And there are two significant ways the Scriptures teach us that Jesus guides His church. The first and most significant is through the Spirit, right? Through the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. He guides His church. In the Gospel of John, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things He says about Him is, it's better that I go away so the Spirit can come. We did a teaching series on the Holy Spirit a couple of years ago and centered around that idea an awful lot. Because how could Jesus, who is our Savior and Rescuer, make a statement like that? And how would we ever believe something like that? It's better for Him to go away than to stay. Because when the Spirit comes, it takes the message and the ministry of Jesus out of a singular human body and moves it into every nook and cranny of the world. Jesus guides His church not from human form, but by His Spirit. And Jesus is careful to remind us that the chief goal of the Spirit is to remind and teach us about Jesus. Always pointing us back to how Jesus has saved us. To what Jesus has called us to. To what it means to follow Him and to be His people. Sometimes that's convicting message and sometimes that's affirming message. But the Spirit leads us in that way and empowers us to do the work of Jesus. And then secondly, and this would be a, a, a tear down, is through human leadership in the church. Jesus talks about this after He says in Matthew 16, he will, uh, build, I will build My church. Then He says to His disciples that He's given them authority. Right? And so He's placed on them significant authority within the church. And then later in the New Testament, we realize and we, and we read that there are to be pastors in the church and apostles and, and, and evangelists and, and that there are to be elders appointed in every church. But once again, these are not to create churches in their image. Unfortunately, that happens in our world all too often. But they're there to, to represent Christ and to be accountable to Him and carrying out His mission for the church. So Jesus as our head, as our initiator, our sustainer, who does so through His good and gracious rule and guidance. How does He do this? By constantly initiating rescue, salvation, redemption, and the expansion of the church. Sustaining it through being connected to us and giving us life and vibrancy. Granting us the Scriptures that we can constantly be centered around His rule and His truth. And giving us His Spirit to constantly be in our conscience, convicting and affirming and empowering us to live in the way of Christ. 
and graciously giving us leaders in the church who are quite imperfect, but who are meant to function under the authority of the Scriptures, empowered by the Spirit, to push forward the vision of the church that Jesus has given, not that we have given. So, let me close by asking a question. What then are the implications of the headship of Christ for us when we gather as a church? Now I'm specifically not talking about all the ministries and functions of the church, but when we actually gather collectively, like we are this morning, both online and here in person, what are the implications for us that Christ is the head, not human government, not human religious leaders, not local church leaders, and not you? The first implication seems obvious to me. That is that any time we gather as a church, it must be about Jesus and for Jesus. Any time we gather as a church, it must be about Jesus and for Jesus. It is not about creating emotional moments or high points for people to come and get charged up about. I hope there are times that are emotional and high points for you, but not because we have preordained them in our gathering or set you up to experience them, but because you have tasted and seen Jesus for who He actually is. Our job is not to create an experience that will be good for you. Our job is to lift Jesus high and give you the opportunity to be connected to Him in deeper ways and to so revel in His glory that it creates those moments for you. Listen, I understand that churches have done innovative things and done creative things. And I'm all for innovation and creativity in so much as it makes much of Jesus, not so much so that it gathers lots of crowds and makes the church about them. You see this? This is significant. If Jesus is the head, then He's the head. Not you, and not me. Hope Alliance should not look like what I want it to look like, nor should it look like what will gather lots of crowds because it's what you love. It needs to look like Jesus. We make much of Jesus when we gather because He's our only hope. Your hope is not in me. It should not be in me. And my hope is not in you. And therefore, we can't create gatherings that are either about me or about you. Otherwise, we point ourselves in the wrong direction. Every time we gather, it's about Jesus and it's for Jesus. It is that we are reveling in His glory. That we are being reminded and re-centered on His work of salvation for us. Pointing to His incarnation, to His ministry, to His death on the cross, and ultimately to His victory in the resurrection. That's what we do when we gather. We make much of Jesus by proclaiming His work because we go off from this place and we hear all kinds of other messages and we get connected to all kinds of other meta-narratives and we need to be reminded and we need to be recentered because that's where we gain life, 
not from those other places. Listen, a great worship set with a great band and a fantastic sermon will give you an hour of excitement, but it will not give you life. Jesus gives life. And so when we gather, it's for Jesus and it's about Jesus. And therefore, every time we gather, we submit to Jesus. That means sometimes what I have planned or what you have planned for a Sunday to look like might have to be scrapped and it might have to look different. And we've experienced that sometimes where the Spirit has moved in our midst and we've done different things than we originally intended. Why? Because our gatherings are not about what I've planned. They're for and about Jesus. And so we hold our plans loosely. But submitting to Jesus is also about all of us collectively and about what we think about the church. If the church is for me, and if I'm the head of the church, then my connection to the church can be as flippant as I want it to be. I don't feel like coming today? No problem. I don't like how that went? No worries. But if the church is for and about Jesus, then my role is to submit to Jesus. And one of the greatest ways we submit to Jesus is heeding His call to be part of His body. The body of Jesus that, that fills the world with His glory. You cannot be part of that body by sitting on the sidelines. Jesus as head of the church means that we need to think highly of the church. And that our connection and connectivity to the church should be a significant priority for us. It should not be consumeristic. And it should not be flippant. Being part of the church, being proactively connected to the church, and participating intentionally within the church says that you value the headship of Jesus above your own rule and reign. Here at Hope Alliance, we have a simple statement that we believe defines who we are. It says simply Jesus. It says that Jesus is first, everything else is second. It's that simple. It's our aim and our intention to make everything we do at Hope about and for Jesus, and to make sure that everything else is second. Why? Because Jesus is our initiator and our sustainer. He graciously rules and guides us. He is 
our head. You pray with me?